morning. morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you and we are going to make our petitions known to you because we know that you are sovereign and we know that you are good. You are in control of all things. You have the authority to be in control of all things. You have the right to be in control of all things. You have the power to be in control of all things. Your word tells us you are in control of all things. So we bring then all things in our life and in our world to you. We are comforted this morning by the knowledge that there is not one thing that happens in this world, in our country, in our lives that is not a part from your sovereign will, Lord. It is all according to your sovereignty that all these things happen. So we acknowledge you, Lord, because only you can do these things that we ask. But we also pray to you, Lord, because you are good. It's amazing that we can come to you and ask anything from you as your children, and we can be certain that what you will do for us, even if it be difficult now, is for our good. That's how good and amazing you are. That everything that we ask of you will be done and will be done for our good because you are a loving God. Let us not take for granted that the one who is sovereign over heaven and earth is the God of love. When the world is collapsing before our very eyes, the nation we once knew and loved now hating Believers, you, Lord, do it for our good and are in control of it. But, Lord, we still ask and make our petitions known to you that you might, in this day, less than a month away from one of the most important elections this country has ever faced, Lord, we ask that you, Lord, would be sovereign and good in this situation and that you would appoint the person you, Lord, choose to appoint. Lord, in the midst of us, of this, let us show our integrity as believers and our patience and long suffering, suffering with those who harbor differences of opinion, understanding and appreciating the moment as something very difficult for any believer to do to make a decision in this day and in this race. Lord, I pray that we would be patient and loving and kind with those who go in a different direction than the one we think they should go in. Because, Lord, we ultimately know there's only one king who rules righteously. There's only one king who will stop every war. There's only one king who will feed every mouth. There's only one king who judges perfectly. And he's not running in this race. But he is nonetheless in control of it. Lord, I thank you for this church. Thank you for the opportunity to dedicate a beautiful baby this morning. I pray that this baby would be one of many that begins to grow up in this church, loving both Jesus and his church. Lord, it's the greatest thing we can do as parents and as those in charge of little ones to make sure that they run to Jesus, that they love Jesus, that they love his church. Lord, don't let this church send out young people hating Jesus and his church because of the things we have failed to do. 
Lord, you are good and you are perfect and you are holy. And sometimes those of us who are adults fail to reflect your goodness and your holiness. But Lord, don't let that happen at the expense of our children. Let us reflect your goodness and your holiness in such a way that our kids grow up to love Jesus and love his church. Lord, let this word go where you send it and accomplish that which you please this morning. Help us to see that true religion is a religion of the heart, not a religion of our lips. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. It's going to be our passage this morning. The Beatitudes describe the kingdom blessings of all those who God has called to manifest character traits representative of his people. Well, last week we learned that those Beatitudes are not simply for us, but that they are for the world. And those Beatitudes, the righteousness that God has called us to have as the new creations in Christ as believers is for the purpose of salt and light for the world. There is no such thing as a believer who comes to Jesus and isn't salt and isn't light. And Jesus makes this clear at the outset of his sermon that if you're his children, if you are his disciples, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And if salt loses its saltiness, it's useless. It's only good for being trampled on. In and if you live up north, those of you who've lived up north, they use salt to spray down on the street to keep tires from sliding all over. And by the end of the day, I mean within, the, within an hour, I should say, the salt is dirty. It's disgusting to look at. You see all these pictures on postcards, those of us who live in South Florida where we don't see snow and it looks so beautiful, not in the city. It's dirty and it's gross and it, that salt is useless. It's only good to be trampled on. It's the same thing in those days. But nobody considers themselves to be light, born of the light, to have that light and then hide it under a basket. The text says a bushel means a basket. Nobody hides that light. And so Jesus is beginning his sermon right off the bat to say this one thing. Christian, if you're thinking that you've come to Jesus and you can abandon righteousness and good works, you've got the wrong gospel. That's not the gospel Jesus came to preach. Our passage this morning is fundamental to understanding the entire Sermon on the Mount. Already some were making false claims about Jesus' teaching, saying that he had come to abolish the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Jesus' strong endorsement, though, in the very beginning of our passage this morning silences his critics and proving their spiritual blindness. For those who have eyes to see, Jesus proclaims not the abolition of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, but rather the fulfillment of it in himself. God will judge anyone, according to Jesus' gospel, who relaxes or teaches others to relax even the smallest part of God's Word. 
But for those who obey and who teach others to obey the word of God, even the smallest part of the word of God, Jesus says they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at our text this morning, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Corey Harrison, one of the co-owners of the world-famous gold and silver pawn shop in Las Vegas. Those of you who watch the show Pawn Stars, Corey is the son, the, the youngest son, the grandson of the owner. He once did a video on how to spot a real or how to spot a fake diamond. Those guys are smart. If you ever watch the show, you know right off the bat they're sharp. I found something so interesting when I was watching his little video this week on the difference between real and fake diamonds. Before pawn store owners, before the jewelry world knew about cubic zirconias, they had gone in, many of those with fake diamonds had gone into the pawn stores and gone into the less trained eye and they had passed off these fake diamonds and pawn stores and jewelry stores gave hundreds of thousands of dollars away to these fake diamonds before they knew what they were dealing with. It was interesting what Corey said. He said, the first way to spot a fake diamond is this. He says a fake diamond is too perfect. I thought that was interesting. He said a fake diamond is too perfect to be the real thing. He says, what you have to look for is in a diamond imperfections because the real things, the vast majority of real diamonds are imperfect. They're not perfect. They have little, little specks in them, little corruptions that you can see. He says, but the fake ones, they look real, but they're not. The Pharisees... And the scribes were the cubic zirconiums of the religious world. They looked perfect to everyone around, but Jesus knew that they were fakes. To those untrained in true religion, the scribes and the Pharisees had no faithless flaws or spiritual specks to them. They appeared to be spiritually flawless, but Jesus knew the Pharisees were religious knockoffs. He once compared them to whitewashed tombs, that they were clean on the outside. They looked perfect on the outside, but on the inside, they were full of dead men's bones. Jesus wasn't delusional about them or their teaching because he knew that humans were flawed and that the scribes and Pharisees lied about their flaws. 
In our passage this morning, Jesus warns that unless our righteousness surpass these fake religious zirconiums of the day, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this verse has puzzled anyone who knows the reputation of the Pharisees. And many have thought that Jesus was teaching a moral comparison at best and moral perfection at worst. But neither of these is true. Jesus is not looking for bigger or perfect fakes. He is looking for true and genuine faith. John Stott notes that religious legalists, that is those who are strict on the, the letter of the law and who add to the law things that God never said, but the one thing they always do is they require more and more, but Jesus requires deeper and deeper. This morning, I want to prove that Jesus is not demanding that his followers have more and more of a false faith. Instead, that Jesus is demanding his followers to have a deeper and deeper devotion to him and his commandments. Let's look at our text. Look at verse 17, if you would, with me. In verse 17, Jesus says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The first point I want to make this morning is this. Jesus, in his person, fulfills and interprets the Old Covenant. Jesus, in his person, fulfills and interprets the Old Covenant. Verse 17 starts off with Jesus answering his critics. Apparently, some of his opponents were criticizing him for teaching that the Old Law was to be abolished, and he had brought in a new teaching that was different from the Old Law. And so they were saying, essentially, you are not one of us. You deny the very commands of God. And a lot of heretics do this. A lot of heretics embrace the, the words and the terminology, but they don't embrace the definitions and the dictionaries. And so they were saying, you're fake, Jesus. You come and you're teaching people to get rid of the very words of God. And Jesus says, that is not what I have come to do. So the very beginning, Jesus is going to say this. I have not come to abolish God's word. Christians sometimes ask, what's the, the place of the Old Testament? It is to be looked at as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself taught as much. Jesus has fulfilled. It is not that he has contradicted God's word, but that he has fulfilled God's word. And specifically, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Just really quickly, that expression, the law and the prophets, is a reference to the old covenant. It was a common reference in those days that Jews would use the phrase law and the prophets to speak of the Old Testament. So when you read this, 
I want you to think this. When Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, he is specifically speaking about the old covenant. In the Jewish canon, it was 22 books. In our canon, it's 36. It's the same 36 that's in the 22. They just group them differently. But Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish that. That's not now insignificant now that I've come. No, no, no. It is very real because I am fulfilling it. Why does he say then that he has to come and fulfill it? Briefly, I want to look at what a covenant is and what specifically the old covenant was. A covenant was an agreement between or is an agreement between two parties. It has specifically sanctions and stipulations. So, or stipulations and sanctions. In other words, it says the two parties will do these two things. God says, I will do this. And in return, you'll do this. These are the stipulations that both parties are under. This is a very gracious act of God that he would enter into a covenant with unbelieving, rejecting and rebelling human beings. And that he would say, I'll put myself under stipulations with you. And think about what God is doing. That he would walk in and enter into a covenant with you and I. We don't deserve this. This very act of God is one of the most gracious things God can do. That God would say, I will enter into a contract with the people. Is a gift of God. So these are the stipulations. You do this and I'll do this. Sanctions are what follows if those stipulations are broken. Certainly God can be trusted, but we know man is going to inevitably fail. And so there has to be sanctions for those. There are oaths and vows. We have to swear and enter into that contract just like we do in a religious ceremony like the weddings that we practice in our church. When a person comes forward for a wedding, it is a covenant. You are saying to that person, spouse to spouse, husband to wife is saying, I vow to do these things. And you go into a covenant, you and your spouse with God, and then you ratify that at the end with a kiss. Some of you have been ratifying your kisses a lot longer before that moment, though. I never kissed before I was married. Why are you guys laughing? Some of you are like, I caught you. I caught you doing it. But they would ratify this covenant. And in the, in the old covenant, there were several covenants. The Old Testament had several covenants. Those were either covenants of stipulations and sanctions. They were conditional covenants or they were promissory. And there are several. There is the Adamic covenant. There is the Noetic covenant. There is the Abrahamic covenant. There is the Mosaic covenant. And there is the Davidic covenant. And those fall into one of two categories. They're either a covenant of stipulations and sanctions, conditions, or a covenant of promises. Where God simply promises, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to do this for you. In fact, all of them work together. None of them are different. And all of them are finally affirmed in Jesus. And that's why Jesus can say and does say what he says this morning. I haven't come to abolish this covenant. The promise that God made to Abraham was that all nations would be blessed through him. The promise that 
God made to David was that his son would have an everlasting throne. And that doesn't happen until Jesus arrives. That's why Matthew himself begins his gospel with these words. This is the book of the genealogy of the descendant of Abraham and the son of David. The story of Jesus is the fulfillment of every covenant requirement and promise that God made in the Old Testament. So that when we go back and we read books like Leviticus, when we read books like Exodus, books that prophesy of the coming king who will live for eternity, every last one of those must be interpreted through the lens of what Jesus Christ came and did. After Jesus' resurrection, two disciples were traveling on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus walked up next to them. They didn't know who he was. And here's what he said to them. Have you heard of the things that have been going on here? They asked him and they said, how can anyone not know what has gone on in these days? It was a great event. And Jesus began to explain to these two men how he himself fulfilled the old covenant. Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant. What does it mean that Jesus has fulfilled? When Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the old covenant, what does it mean to say that he has fulfilled it? If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Romans 8, 1 through 4. Romans 8, 1 through 4. Here's what Paul says about this. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Every human being not in Christ Jesus is under the sanctions of the old covenant. You're not in Jesus, you're under the sanctions of the old covenant. You say, now wait a minute, why am I under the sanctions? Maybe I could keep it. But you and I both know you haven't kept that. In fact, when Jesus begins to preach this sermon that he's going to preach, that he did in one setting, I might add, he shows the Pharisees that what they kept on the outside, they did not keep on the inside. So no one keeps this. Jesus fulfills it in this way. It is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life that is the new covenant has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death that is the old covenant. For God has done away or done what the law that is the old covenant weakened by the flesh that is you and me could not do. You see, it was not the problem with the old covenant that required Jesus to come. The old covenant was perfect. But Paul says our flesh was weak and sinful. And the old covenant that required perfect and personal obedience could not be kept by sinful man. 
The old covenant required perfect obedience. That was the stipulation. I'll give you my commands and you keep them. And if you fail to keep them, the sanction is death. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Paul says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he, that is God, condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be what? Fulfilled. Same Greek word, pleru, different verb tense. In our passage this morning, Jesus is saying, I am currently fulfilling the law that God requires on your behalf. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8, some decades later, Christ has fulfilled it for us. We're living in that day. The day where Jesus has fulfilled the law and the commandments and the old covenant on our behalf. In his person and in his work. But the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. Once taught this very same thing. And to teach that Jesus would be. Or that there would be a day when God would send. His messenger to. Or his spirit. And his law into the hearts of his people. In Jeremiah 31.33. The prophet Jeremiah says this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. What a covenant of grace. God once wrote the law on stone tablets. With his very finger. And before Moses could even get down off of the mountain. The people had already demonstrated that their hearts were far from God. You and I both know that the state. That your, your, your local municipalities can write laws on paper all day long. That our hearts hate. And God knew that he could write it on a stone tablet. But as long as our hearts were stones of flesh, or stones and not hearts of flesh, we would never truly love him. So God prophesies through the prophet Jeremiah, one day I will not just write it on stones, I will write it on their hearts. Ezekiel 36, 26, 27 says this. Ezekiel prophesied that God would one day give not only the command or the commandments on their heart, as Jeremiah says, but that he would also give his people a new heart and a new spirit would be put in them. God says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, that is laws, and be careful to obey my rules. There was coming a day that the covenant which the Israelites could not keep 
would be written on new people's hearts. They would know what to keep. And they would have the ability with His Spirit to keep it. This is the day that the Old Covenant longed for. The day where God's people would know it and cherish it on their heart. And would finally by His Spirit be able to uphold the very commands that He had given to them. Look with me at verses 18 and 19 of our passage. Jesus says after this, I, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law and all until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does these and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So if Jesus has fulfilled the covenant, why then is he now saying that we still have to follow it? People have asked this question since the beginning of the Christian church. Why, if Jesus is my righteousness, why, if Jesus has fulfilled the covenant, do I still have to keep it? Jesus not only says you have to keep it, but you have to keep every jot and tittle of it. He uses the word iota, which is a small little Greek word. It's the smallest letter in the Greek, and it's sometimes used for breath. Then he uses the word yod, which is the Hebrew word for horn, and it's simply just a little stroke over a letter that separates one letter from another. Seemingly insignificant. And Jesus says, if you relax even the least commandment of the law and teach others to do the same, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So if Jesus has fulfilled it then, why do we still have to keep it? A second point is this. God's law must not be added to or taken away from, but always followed from the heart to the hands, i.e. what is true on the inside will manifest itself on the outside in my good works. Once again, Jesus' adversaries are the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus warns that if anyone relaxes, meaning to, to unfasten an obligation, the least commandment of the old covenant, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were doing this. They were taking the covenants of God and they were relaxing them to only be an issue of what a person did on the outside and not an issue of what they did on the heart. Pharisees taught don't murder, but hatred was fine. Don't commit adultery, they said, but on the inside, lust was inconsequential. Divorce for the Pharisees was permissible in cases other than adultery. Retaliation against one's enemies was acceptable, and you could even hate your enemies according to their traditions. The Pharisees were fakes. They never took the law of God the way the law of the God was supposed to be taken, which was to be written on hearts and to love from the inside out. 
They took the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. And they added to and relaxed those covenants. And we're going to see how that happens in the coming weeks. But Jesus' point was this. None of God's law should ever be relaxed or added to until heaven and earth pass away. I ask you this question. Has earth passed away this morning? No. Has heaven passed away this morning? No. So that means God and his law still stand for you and for I. Here's the crux of the sermon. Jesus says in verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses or exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is calling his people to strive this morning for a deeper and deeper obedience of the heart. The Pharisees created their own rules by relaxing God's commandments. They taught that a person could divorce his wife if he gave her a certificate of divorce. But God from the beginning was the faithful covenant keeper. And when he sent Hosea to marry a prostitute, it was to show the people what they had done to him. That Hosea would marry a woman who would, as, Jesus, as God says in his word, play the whore was exactly what his very people were doing with him. But Hosea was to be a type of God, faithful even to an adulterous people. They didn't keep the covenant, but God always did. So what does Jesus then have in mind when he says, unless your righteousness now surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Look with me, if you would, at Matthew 15, 1 through 9. Jesus says this. Matthew says this. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and they said... Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Jesus answered them and said this. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So the Pharisees have approached Jesus and said this. Why aren't your people following the religion of our teachers? And Jesus comes to him and says, why aren't your people following the religion of God? Well, which one is greater? Every religion in the world, save that for the religion that began with God coming in a burning bush and ended with God resurrecting from the dead, is a religion that begins with the traditions of men. No man who started Christianity, no man started Christianity, every single one was insignificant in comparison to God. Moses was a fugitive at the time God approached him. 
And Jesus asked this question. Why are you so focused on the religious teachings of the scribes and Pharisees and not following the commandments of God? Jesus said, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. Jesus is talking about a Corbin law, where the children would be exempt from their responsibility to follow the fourth commandment by paying a simple tax to the temple, and instead of giving the money to their parents to care for them, they gave their money to the temple. And Jesus is saying, you teach people to do religious things rather than obviously godly things, which is to care for and love people, the very thing God taught in the fourth commandment. And the fifth commandment, love your mother and father, honor them. He finally says this, you are hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines and the commandments of men. When Jesus says this morning, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, he is calling us to have a relationship with Him. Turn finally to Romans 3.21. Romans 3.21. We're going to read 3.21 through 23 and verse 31. be asking this morning, how can my righteousness then surpass that of scribes and Pharisees? How can I be pleasing to God so that I might enter his kingdom? Here's the answer. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The beginning of your righteousness, the beginning of a true religion that pleases God is faith in Jesus Christ. If you're sitting out there this morning and you say, I'm too wicked to be saved. Don't be fooled by the false religion of the Pharisees. The true religion of God is this. Faith in His Son who has fulfilled the law once and for all. If you're an unbeliever today, have faith in Jesus. Accept Him as your Savior. And as the one who has fulfilled your law, or his law, on your behalf. But finally, here's what Paul says in verse 31. Christian, 
For those of us who ask, why then do we uphold the law now that Jesus has fulfilled it for us? Paul speaks of a true reality, the same reality that Jesus speaks in verse 20 and will speak about in the coming weeks. It is this. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith we have in Jesus? Do we now back away from the law and say, I no longer have to be good. I can live however I want because Jesus has fulfilled it for me. Paul said, someone were already asking this question. Do we then overthrow the law that is failed to keep it because we have faith? Paul says, by no means. On the contrary, because we have faith, we uphold the law. Believer, if you have Jesus in your life and in your heart, that is the beginning of having a righteousness that far exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. In this day, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, God pours in us His Spirit and gives us His covenant on our hearts that we might know God's Word and we might desire to keep it. Just like our analogy when we begin this morning. It's not that you're going to be so perfect that you're a fake. It's that you're going to be the real thing growing and growing to be more pure until God and His Son return to glorify us in that day. I ask you this question this morning. Do you desire to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees? Do you really believe that there is coming a day where God will say, you may not enter my kingdom? my rest unless you have my son if you're asking this question this morning I want you to pray with me this prayer would you bow your heads and pray with me Lord my righteousness will never be enough to please you. The works of my hands will never satisfy what your covenant required. In my flesh, I will never fulfill your law. But your word has promised that Jesus has come to fulfill the law on my behalf. By faith this morning, I accept Jesus as my righteousness. Lord, I pray this morning that if there are those who have prayed that prayer, that they would begin to grow to be the pure diamonds that your spirit has made them. Writing on their hearts your word. And empowering them by your spirit to keep your law. Lord, for every believer in here today who has neglected 